The Tom Woods Show, episode 1508. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, social media is a pit of misinformation when it comes to the subject of guns. So what you need is my free ebook, Your Facebook Friends Are Wrong About Guns. Smashes all the myths and a lot of fun to read. Pick it up at wrongaboutguns.com. Hey everybody, Tom Woods here, fresh from a trip to England. Maybe I'll write a little something about it in my email newsletter, which you all subscribe to. Actually, I don't know. Maybe by the time I've Maybe by the time you hear this, I will already have written the newsletter. I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? But it was an interesting trip, and I loved being in London, and I know there are problems there. Believe me, I get it. I know there are problems in New York. There are problems in all the places I love in this world, but I'm not going to let the terrorists win. If I love being in a place, then doggone it, I'm going there. So in order to help ease my way back into Eastern time, I am today sharing with you a very recent appearance I made on the Death to Tyrants podcast hosted by Buck Johnson. I'll link to that podcast at tomwoods.com slash 1508. So I hope you enjoy this. Here we go. Tom, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. So you've written many books, many eBooks. You've got the biggest libertarian podcast on the planet. And there's no point in having you on and saying, What's your opinion on Joe Biden right now? What's your opinion on the income tax? What's your opinion on war? Because I think most of us know a lot of these things. And what a lot of us might not know is how you got here. And so I kind of wanted to get into some of that stuff with you. So uh, how does that sound? Sounds great. I do know your early interest in academics was in math, uh, correct? Strangely enough, yes. And that's what I expected to devote my career to, if you can believe that. So what age did you first start developing an interest in politics rather than math? I was always a math geek. I, I loved it. I loved the elegance of it. I loved the I – lo- I'm a problem solver. I like solving problems. I like brain teasers, and that's how I viewed math as a giant brain teaser. expected that I would, in one way or another, be teaching math in my life. So – what wound up happening was around the time I became a freshman in college, even though I had been interested in politics, I just had thought I would make a career out of that kind of thing, like ideas and, and uh, ideology and stuff. But it was my experience in college that changed my mind. And when I tell this story, it just seems so ridiculous. But there were on my college campus actual real-life communists. Now, I don't mean people who supported the welfare state. I mean outright communists. And they would table and distribute their literature around the time of, of dinner for the freshmen. And this just made me crazy. I thought, look, I know enough about communism to know this is not something we should be yearning for. But they would argue with me, and so then I started reading so that I could beat them. And all normal people just walked right by them. No, Nobody cared, but I had to, I could not let these people continue in their error. And as I did that, I realized how much I enjoyed reading about history. And then I felt like if I do math, I'm not going to be part of the, you know, the intellectual battle, really. So maybe I should be doing this instead. So it wasn't that I went into history just to be a propagandist. I certainly don't want that. But it was that I found that I liked this stuff. I liked learning about ideas and history and I liked being able to be in a position to have an informed conversation about something. 
and to the point where I could successfully debate people on it. And the only way to do that is by immersing yourself in it. And that's why I decided to major in it. Once you were deeply involved in, in that, was there an awakening moment where you thought, I'm not sure that the history we've been taught through all the levels of schooling is exactly the history that might be correct. Was there kind of a light bulb moment at that point? Very early. Uh, probably the first week I was a freshman, I was at one of these social gatherings where you're supposed to get to know each other, all the incoming freshmen. And I met a guy who, I don't want to say his name because he's leading a very mainstream academic career right now and I don't think he wants to be bothered and I'm going to respect that. But he and I got talking and he was saying, what you really need to do, we were 18 years old at the time, is read Paul Johnson's book, Modern Times. Uh huh. Because what you're going to find is that all the presidents they told you were good were bad, and the ones they told you were bad were actually pretty good. I thought, oh, that sounds right up my alley. And so I actually did that. I mean, most of the time somebody tells you, go read this whatever, 700-page book. You say, yeah, I'll, I'll make sure and put that on the list. <laughs> and, and there is no list. You know, yeah. You're just saying that. There's no list. That book is not going to be read. But I actually went and got the book. I ordered it. I still have my copy from, from 1990. I still have it. I ordered it. I read it. And that did blow me away because I realized there is, let's say, a side to history that you have to make a special effort to find because nobody's going to deliver it to you. Right. If you were discussing those type of ideas back then on campus with colleagues or friends, would you get pushback from people? I would, but I, I kind of knew knew better than to try because it, not so much because I feared controversy, but because I just didn't want to be bothered. I don't want to be arguing 24 hours a day. So I did write for, let's say, dissident student publications, and that's how I got that stuff off my chest. I would say that, the, let's say, campus life was not nearly as shrill as it is now. People didn't automatically assume you were the worst person in the world just because you disagreed with them. I mean, it was a it was a different world. We still had political correctness, but my gosh, I would kill to have the environment of the early 1990s back if I could. Right, right. How would you classify your political leanings then while in college? I mean, I know you were anti-communist, but of course, hopefully that'd be most people that doesn't necessarily put you into a specific niche. So how were you... Uh, on the political spectrum back then? Well, I mean, I thought of myself as a Republican and it really, really bothered me when Bill Clinton got elected in 1992. And again, I would take the Bill Clinton of 1992 gladly today <laughs> compared to what the typical choices are. But that really did bother me that George H.W. Bush had not won re-election. And that just horrifies me now that that's where I was in my thinking. So I was a, just a card-carrying Republican. And then as the, as, and in fact, I was the vice president of the Harvard Republicans for a time. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. But then I started going to libertarian conferences and events because they were pitched to me as being, you know, in favor of private property and, and the market economy. And I liked all those things. And when I went to those events from the, the one that was most memorable to me was from the Mises Institute it really made me think that I was not altogether consistent in my thinking. And, and I tend to be the sort of person who wants to be consistent. I want to, I want to either be one thing or the other. I don't want to be in the middle of the road. I want to be one thing or the other. So that really kind of focused me 
and made me think of myself as a libertarian. And then as the 1990s went on, I went to an extreme right-wing period where I thought the libertarians had some points, but they they didn't quite see the whole picture. They were unrealistic, and they didn't understand that we needed a strong state for this and that. So I go through that period, and that's the period everybody gives me grief for today. And they say, look at how unlibertarian Woods was. Well, yeah, you caught me. During my unlibertarian phase, I was not a libertarian. That, that's some great detective work there. But by 2001, I had more or less come back to the libertarian team, and that's where I've stayed. Was that phase, would you consider that a paleo phase for you, the one you were just mentioning? Yeah, it was. It was. And I still have great fondness for those people. I don't in any way share the animosity toward them that left libertarians seem to have. And, and almost none of those people know anything about any of these people. I mean, almost none of them know anything. They just know the official position we are supposed to take Right. You know, is uh, that these are terrible people or whatever. Th these were all brilliant scholars. Mm -hmm. Paul Gottfried is a brilliant scholar. Clyde Wilson is one of the greatest Southern historians of our time. You could just go down the list. These are smart people. Tom Fleming, I've had sort of a falling out with, but he has a PhD in classics from UNC Chapel Hill. This is not a dummy. Uh, these were people I was very glad to get to know and I learned an awful lot from. And they were all anti-war, right. which is more than I could say for half the people the left libertarians hang out with. So I, I will hear no criticism of this. This was a great – Bill Kaufman's one of my favorite people in the world. I got to know him uh, because of, I went through that phase. So you know, I, I look back on it as I wasn't right about everything. I was, I was wrong about some things. But what interesting person isn't wrong at some point? I mean how could you be so much an expert on everything that your initial instinct on absolutely everything is absolutely 100 percent correct? Right, right. So you mentioned that some of your first steps into libertarianism then were through a Mises Institute meeting, or was it a, did you go see speakers speak, or what was that about? I went to the Mises University summer program, which has been going on for a long time, since the late 80s, I think. It's a week-long program where you are absolutely immersed in the Austrian School of Economics, and that's when I first met Murray Rothbard, and I met Lou Rockwell and Hans Hoppe, and uh, Tom DiLorenzo, and a lot of really, really important scholars. So when you first discovered then this libertarian world, or maybe even when you got back into it, were there any hmm, trepidation about going all in on libertarianism? Were there things where you thought, I just don't know about this one specific part of this? Well, yes, but I think that would be true of anything that I might go into. Uh, and, and I just would be content to say, I'm not really sure I know the answer to that question, but I'm going to keep thinking about it was the way I thought. Because I felt like the overall approach I'm convinced of, mm -hmm. that I do believe that society runs itself. I do believe that, that the economy, the way, it, the way we decide what's going to be produced and where and how much of it and things like that, and the way, the way that adjusts itself over time, is more or less automatic because when profits are high, that attracts more entrance into the field and that pushes profits back down and that equilibrates the uh, the situation more or less. I don't like to use that word. But then also if uh, demand for something falls, maybe people's tastes change or circumstances change, then there isn't a rush to get into that field. There's a rush to get out of it. And the rush to get out of it means less of that whatever that product is is produced. And so as a result, 
profits are pushed back up again. And so this all just happens. It just happens spontaneously in response to people's buying or abstention from buying. And that just impressed me when I learned about how that worked. And I realized that in effect, all of society kind of works this way. And so if I can't necessarily imagine in my own pea brain exactly how the market would handle A, B, and C, I see the general picture of how it works. And that gave me a confidence that individual cases could be handled. The first time you were on my radar personally was when I bought the Politically Incorrect Guide to American History, I believe in 05 or so, some point back then, 04, 05. Was that your first bestseller? Yes, it was. Before that, I'd had one or two titles that were pitched either to academic audiences or very niche audiences. So that was a turning point for me. I believe you also famously received some pushback on that book. And go figure that some PC gurus were offended by a book called Politically Incorrect Guide. Uh, was that when Mr. Max Boot came after you? Yes, it was. And at my website, if you go to tomwoods.com slash books, you'll see the books I've written. And if you click on the Politically Incorrect Guide, I have a section of my replies to critics. Great. and. I think I got the better of these people. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> you know, I did not come in second in these exchanges. But yeah, Max Boot uh, was unhappy because the Weekly Standard, which thank heavens no longer exists, uh -huh. had given me a fairly favorable review in their print edition. And so he gave me a scathing review in the online edition. I mean, look, you're not allowed to do that. You already reviewed the book too late. You know, stinks <laughs> for you. But basically his complaints were, consistently that I was just making unorthodox claims. I mean, it was, it's just, it was so classic neocon. Yeah. You know, they cannot imagine somebody who makes unorthodox claims. So it, it would just be him pointing and saying, look at what he says. Like there was no attempt to refute me. It was, do you believe he says this? And yeah. then he says this, and then he says that. I mean, he sounds like a tattletale in school. You know, like, can you believe he said that? He said this, <laughs> hey teacher, look at this guy. He said this, and it was just like, and it's just that tone of voice of the tattletale. He said this, like, you just want to smack him. But I'm not, a, I'm not the smacking type. I just smack people down with my words. Right, right. So the American Conservative magazine said, look, if you want to respond to Boot, our pages are open to you. And I said, thank you very much. I will. And it's so funny now, the, the left, when they want to go after me, they solemnly cite Max Boot's review of me. Naturally. Look, Max Boot is a warmongering lunatic. Why are you citing him against me? <laughs> and the answer is they don't care about war. They could, could not care less. Right. They care about orthodoxy and enforcing orthodoxy. So they don't bother to point out Woods responded to Max Boot. Like that is not on the radar. But I did. I did answer him. So, yeah, I had some pushback. Uh, but it, it only – at the time, I was terrified. I thought this is going to destroy me. No, you idiot. What it did was it elevated my profile. And it made the, the book crack into the top 10 of the New York Times bestseller list. So because, because when, when Max Boot or the New York Times say, don't read this book, well, duh, what do these people think is going to happen? Did they not learn from when the BBC was banning the Beatles, song, you know, Beatles songs in the 1960s? It just made people want to listen all the more. Right. Well, I can remember exactly where I was when I read that Ron Paul – was going to enter the Republican primary for the presidential ticket. That's kind of how much that moment impacted me. I jumped up, called my father. Can you believe this? This this is the real guy. He's going to run for president. I was kind of naive back then thinking he's going to win. 
How did you find out about Ron Paul putting his name in that hat? And what were your initial thoughts on that? Honestly, that moment I don't recall in detail, but I do recall thinking he's going to shake things up in ways people aren't expecting. I had been following him for a very long time, uh, at least since the early 1990s. I knew that he had been a congressman. This was I found out about him in between his two stints in Congress. So then when I when I knew that he was running for Congress again in 96, I guess, I was very excited about that, very happy about that, even though I'd given up on presidential politics by then, certainly. So, I mean, by that point, Bob Dole versus Bill Clinton, I thought, oh, come on, you know, right. give me a break. So I wasn't interested in that anymore. But I felt, even though I didn't know, especially because there wasn't really an internet in those days, it was barely getting started. I had no idea what Ron Paul was up to, but I somehow felt comforted just knowing he was there. And so every two years, I would look at the election returns just to make sure he'd been reelected. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, when he announced he was running, I thought, all right, he's going to say things no one's ever said. And I don't know if that's going to mean he's going to do well or not, but he's certainly going to raise eyebrows. What were those the initial early Ron Paul revolution years, what was that like for you? What was the part that you played? Because um, I played a little bit of a part in it. I was drumming for a guy named Jimmy Vaughn, and we played at the Campaign for Liberty Fest in Minneapolis. Oh, sure, I remember that, yeah. Yes. Yeah, and um, we played again for him in 2012, I believe it was in Florida. What were those years like? Because I kind of missed them. Uh, we're missing a lot of things that happened during those years. What were the Ron Paul revolution years like for you, and what part did you play in it? Well, the the first campaign, it was it was really thrilling because they tried to black him out in various ways in the media. The Republican Party tried to pretend he didn't exist. The first event that really struck me where I said something is really happening here was a voters forum in Iowa where something like the, it was like the Iowa Christian Alliance and the Iowans for Tax Relief were doing a joint event with Republican candidates. They did not invite Ron Paul. And this is, it's a tax forum. Right. They're not inviting Ron Paul. (laughs) So I said, this is like a Riddler forum and you don't invite Batman. What is this? So the Ron Paul people just said, well, the heck with this, we're going to have our own event in the same darn building. So their event had about 10 or maybe a dozen candidates, and they had candidates you've never heard of. I, I mean, these these were people you've never heard of, whereas here's a sitting congressman, and they're making excuses as to why they don't want Of course, they don't want him because he's unconventional, and they want – basically, they want somebody who's going to go up there, give them a pretty speech, and then change nothing. For some reason, these people get extremely aroused by people who do nothing but <laughs> give pretty speeches and change nothing. So that's what they want more than anything. So – Ron Paul isn't that at all. So they wound up getting a crowd that was like twice as big or maybe even more for just one candidate as these people were able to muster for 10 or 12. And I remember there's video of our people marching into that building, chanting Ron Paul's name as they headed into their room across from that forum. And I realized that something major was happening. So I wrote a lot of articles about this phenomenon and I defended Dr. Paul and I made a lot of videos because you know, Slate, Salon would be making these low IQ arguments about, oh, no, he doesn't favor X or Y, obvi- you know, right. obvious thing that everyone's supposed to favor. Right. And this means, you know, insert terrible thing that's going to happen. 
And it was all based on like just conventional understanding of everything, just no curiosity about the world at all. So I made a lot of videos defending him, and he would send me a note here and there saying, you know, thanks for this, it helps. And I think these these videos got a lot of views. And so by the time we got to 2008, I was kind of, you know, I was speaking on behalf of him, and after the campaign was over, and he started the Campaign for Liberty organization, I would be his opening speaker at a lot of events around the country. Big crowds, a lot of fun. It definitely elevated my profile because I spoke at that rally for the Republic in 2008, mm-hmm. as you did. And I, uh, you know, and I did some writing for uh, like the, I think it can be said now, it's it's enough time to pass. Like things like on the website when uh, in 2008, he declared that he was withdrawing from the race and there was a thank you message to supporters stuff. I wrote that. So, I mean, I did stuff like that. And, and, you know, I, I did work on something like when campaign for Liberty got started, I wrote the statement of principles. I wrote, you know, the foundational documents for that. And, uh, he actually asked me if I wanted to run the organization, but I didn't want to relocate to Texas basically because I had just we had just moved to Alabama two years before uh-huh. and I had a young family and I just didn't feel like I keep moving them around and especially for something that wasn't a sure thing. I had young kids and I had to really think about that. But uh, so, yeah, between that and 2012 and 2012, I, I was part of a super PAC for him and we made a couple of TV ads that I am very, very proud of. So, yeah, I was basically like the the guy who would, you know, he, he obviously any presidential candidate is, is speaking in general terms. And then I would make videos getting into the specifics, defending his general statements. And it was kind of a, you know, it, it worked out. You mentioned there that you had just moved to Alabama. Was that to basically be a senior fellow? Is that your Mises Institute kind of introduction as someone who's part of it? Yeah. I mean, you could be a senior fellow and live anywhere, but I was also a resident scholar for four years. I actually physically was at the Mises Institute. And that's a time when I may have been if not my most productive, pretty darn close. I mean, I produced book after book during those years, and I did a lot of writing and speaking and videos and all that because I had free reign, more or less, to do as I pleased. It was an amazing time. What were your early memories and introductions to Lou Rockwell? Uh, I know you guys have become friends over the years. What was he like when you first met him? Well, Lou's a very quiet, reserved person. At this point, I've gotten to know him quite well, and we would talk to each other quite a lot during the Ron Paul campaigns, quite a lot. I mean, we we were on the phone probably every day talking about what's going on and are we happy or unhappy about it. But when I first met him, yeah, I I didn't get to know him that well right away, but I knew he liked me and he saw something in me. That was very nice. I do recall spending a summer at the Mises Institute at time when my grandfather was very ill and he was in the hospital and I, I visited him and it turns out he was just much worse than we realized. And so when I returned to Alabama for my summer at at Mises, I was told that the doctors were convinced that he was trying to stay alive until the end of the summer so that he could see me again before he perished basically. And, um, I, I, I wanted to see him, but that was an expense for me. And Lou basically paid for me to fly back, visit my grandfather. Wow. And I did that. And within that week, he passed away. Wow. So, I mean, that was the kind of thing. I mean, Lou does these things out of his own pocket 
And you know, he has detractors who are pygmies by comparison to him in terms of what they've accomplished and in terms of their moral character. But that's the kind of guy he was, and he still is. And, and we don't know the half of the generosity of this guy. Tom, you are probably one of the best people on earth, really, at teaching libertarian ideas. I've learned a lot from you, your books, your podcasts. I've got a two-part question here. What's one of the biggest misconceptions about libertarianism that you run into? And are there any areas where it's hard even for you to sell someone on certain aspects of libertarianism? Yeah, I think a couple of them would be that libertarianism has been tried, like in places like Somalia, and we know that doesn't work. You know, we get this all the time. Mm -hmm. All right, first of all, I mean, the Somalia thing, is, is, if that's libertarian, I mean, come on. Uh, but the interesting thing about Somalia is that if you actually compare Somalia not to the United States, yeah, I know. The United States is richer than Somalia, you know, <laughs> duh, I know that. But is that really the relevant comparison? Because then I could just as easily say, look at Ethiopia, much poorer than the U.S., and they have a government. You know, what is that? That's stupid. Well, that's a stupid argument. The relevant comparison is comparable countries, right? Neighboring countries in Africa. And compared to those, Somalia did very well during its stateless period. That's the comparison. But, but nobody makes these necessary distinctions. So there's that. Or, you know, there's the idea that libertarians are just uh, – they're libertarian because they want to live dissolute lifestyles or something. Mm -hmm. And maybe some of them are. Okay, But that's not necessarily connected to libertarian. We, we just don't want to use or, – or even this, even this thing, libertarians just want to be left alone. Okay, that's sort of it, but even that's a weird way of putting it. We just don't want physical aggression used against anyone. Maybe I don't want to be left alone. Maybe I want people coming and visiting me. Like, you know, I don't like this left alone thing, like we're just curmudgeons. It's that we don't want violence being used against peaceful people. That's the correct way to put it. And that, I think, is why they never put it that way. If you just say, oh, these people just want to be left alone, it makes us seem antisocial and selfish. Mm -hmm. But if instead you say these people have a deep moral aversion to the initiation of violence, well, you can at least respect that on some level. Even if you don't share our aversion to violence, you can at least respect it. And so therefore, I think they don't quite put it that way. And the other thing would be maybe how the poor would be cared for. Sometimes it is hard to persuade people that there would be alternatives and the state is actually making the situation worse. There's somebody very important to me who agrees with me on just about everything and yet can't quite be brought on board on the welfare state issue. You know, and so, you know, that, so there are some challenges we have, no question about it. I want to ask you real quick also about your Ron Paul homeschooling curriculum. That's amazing to me. And at some point, if I have a kid, you know, I'm buying that from you. How did that come about and what all does it encompass? Well, Dr. Paul had been wanting to do this for a long time and he had ripped it with me in the past. And I just thought that I love the idea. But the, the very thought of putting together a K through 12 curriculum just exhausts me, even thinking about it. Yeah. But then after he got out of politics and he could really focus on non-political projects, he revisited the idea. said, this is something that really could be an enduring legacy for me. And, and he didn't put it that way. But what he meant by it was, this is something that will outlive me. This is something that – this is a way I can be educating people after I'm gone. So – I decided to come on board because I thought I had something to contribute and I thought the project was important. 
And you know, the, the thing is, you look at the conservative movement, and who knows how much money they've spent on political campaigns and think tanks. And I mean, it, it's you don't even want to think about the money they've 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 thrown down the toilet. And yet, did did any of them think for a minute? Let's build a K through 12 homeschool curriculum, which would have had a greater impact than all that stuff combined. Never occurred to any of them. And for all the critics of of my wing of libertarianism, where's their K through 12 curriculum? You know, they can say, "Oh, Tom Woods is a bad guy all day long." Okay, fine. I'm I'm the worst person who ever lived. Now, <laughs> now that we got that out of the way, where's your K through 12 curriculum? Of course, it would never occur to these people because it's their job to sit around and shout through bullhorns at people like me who actually accomplish things. And that is, a, I mean, that's a serious, that took me just to do three courses for it, took me two years. And not because I'm slow, but because that's 400 videos on history from the ancient Hebrews all the way up through the present day. And, wow. and that is a huge amount of knowledge being conveyed there. And I think you get a massive leg up if you're, if you're in the wrong Not just because we cover the traditional subjects better. But also because we cover non-traditional subjects, like how teens should learn to manage their money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you think people could stand to learn that? Or how to start your own home business, or how to be an effective public speaker, or how to start a blog or a YouTube channel. I mean, these are the, nobody's taught these things, but think of the advantage you have when you know them and you master them by the age of 18. Well, this is going to be a, I kind of already know your answer here, but... It's interesting. We're in influx, I would say, here in the libertarian party world. What are your thoughts on the current state of the LP? Well, there's good and there's bad, isn't there? I mean, there is some good stuff coming out of the Mises caucus of the libertarian party, which continues to grow. That's where all the energy is. You know, the energy is not stuffed shirts who say, let's nominate, uh, you know, Mr. Boring McBoringson over here. The, the stuffed shirts don't have the momentum and the energy. The momentum and the energy is with the young radicals who really, really believe in libertarianism. You know, not the ones who, who make excuses for politicians. You know, well, nobody's perfect and we, we have to take the, uh, stop, stop. The, the real energy is coming from them. And, and I've, I've got a pretty good relationship with uh, some of the folks at the top of the party, not the chairman of the party, but that's okay. The executive director is very friendly with me. The membership person is very friendly with me because you'd have to be deranged not to be. I mean, I, I've done a few things for libertarianism over the years. <laughs> right. so, um, and, and I bring a lot of folks with me. And if you alienate me unnecessarily, you're alienating all those folks unnecessarily. Now, I understand that the argument is, well, we want to alienate those people because those are terrible off people. My people are highly educated, very successful. If you look at the demographics of my show – this is why advertisers want to advertise on my show. My people have money and they have education. They are not backwoods hicks. They're not the sort of people that I'm sure my enemies want to portray them as. They're good. They're exactly the demographic you want. So uh, I would say, yeah, there, there are some problems. There, there's some pandering to the left that definitely goes on. And it's the thinking is, well, the culture is moving leftward and we need to reach a growing generation that is on the left. But the problem with that is the generation that's on the left, they are won over to the Democrats. They are in the Democratic camp or farther to the left, and you're not getting them back, right. period. If they want leftism, they've already got a winning formula. Why would they join the Libertarian Party? At the same time, I don't want to be you know, a carbon copy of the Republican. And it's very rich, by the way. 
that I would be accused of favoring that when these are the people who keep nominating ex-Republican governors. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know and they're the ones, well, we can't be a carbon copy of the Republicans. I don't, that's my point. <laughs> I don't want to be that either, you know? But so you have a lot of young people, though, who are not leftists, but at the same time, they'll watch Fox News over their dead body. Fox News' demographic is all old people. Basically, overwhelmingly, it's old people. So you've got now a politically homeless group of people who are repelled by social justice warrior nonsense, but they're not attracted by Sean Hannity either. That's your natural constituency. They're homeless. The left has a home. These people don't have one. You know, why don't you reach out to them? Well, because it won't make you popular with the New York Times. All right. If that's your main priority, then, yeah, I guess you're going to continue to appeal to people who are going to hate you no matter what you do. Okay, I don't think that's a winning strategy. I get this a lot from my friends that are just kind of dipping their toe into politics. Okay, I get your your point. Violence is bad against peaceful people. Uh, libertarianism seems like pretty cool state of mind, cool ideas, cool philosophy. But how are we ever going to achieve what you say you want, the society that you want? How would we ever get to a libertarian society? And I've I've got some answers or some at least thoughts on that. Um, before we go, I wanted to get your thoughts on what is the best way to achieve the society that you and I would hope for? Is it secession, decentralization? What are your thoughts on that? Well, the thing is, you can have any society you want once enough people believe in it. That's the thing. And we have the society we have now because enough people apparently think it's at least good enough that it's not worth rebelling against it, basically. So there does have to be some kind of transformation on that level. But also, yeah, I do think decentralization has to be the way forward. I mean, how can it be that from now on forever we're just locked in a struggle of half the people hating the other half forever? And then we're all trying to see who can grab the reins of power and dominate the others forever. Now, if you are overwhelmed by power lust, as I think most of these people who hate me like uh, and people like me are – then that's not going to persuade you. They don't want decentralization. They they want to get the whole thing, and they want to make sure everybody lives the way they do, or or at least that people who disagree with them suffer in some way. I don't feel that way. Even even people I I really really dislike for their views. I really don't want to make them miserable. I genuinely have no desire to make them miserable. And 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 I'll be perfectly blunt. I think that makes me a better person than they are. I'm just going to say that. I think that makes me a better person. I don't want to humiliate them. I don't want to rub their noses in you know, some political victory that I might win. I just want them to live their lives peacefully, and I hope they're happy, and I hope their lives are fulfilling, genuinely. Just let me live my life you know, without forcing me to teach my kids X, Y, or Z or, or whatever, or seizing resources for me to fund things I disapprove of. I, you know, I just can't imagine that's the best way for us to live. So but that's why I think peaceful, civilized people would favor decentralization. Here's another question I like asking great thinkers like yourself. I asked this to Mr. Gottfried as well. In this day and age, 2019, who's a bigger threat to our liberties, the state or the left? Well, it's very hard to separate those because um, the, the left is not a threat to us until they are in charge of the state. And typically, though, even if somebody who's not a leftist comes into power – the left has insinuated itself so deeply into federal institutions that it's not like all of a sudden everybody at the Department of Education is is reading John Taylor Gatto, you know, just because a Republican got elected. So they still are in there, you know, because these are the sorts of professions that a left winger is attracted to. 
A right winger is not attracted to working in the education bureaucracy. Who would be? You know, so even when they're out of power, they're still in power. You know, so that's that's why I fear them is that they this they think this is an honorable profession. You know, and a lot of our people don't. And so they tend to stay away from it. So I, I think it's not a binary choice. I think it's the left plus the state is the problem. Now, obviously, the right plus the state is a problem, too. But just in practice, right wingers are just not as drawn to this. They're not as drawn to careers in government. They're not as drawn to policy wonkery. They're not as drawn to agendas to remake America. They're just – they're not. And so I, that's why I don't fear them that much. I, I don't fear – I don't see what the problem of, with, with them is supposed to be. I mean, yeah, obviously I know that there are people you know, who want tariffs and stuff like that, and I, I get that. But in terms of trying to carry through a radical revolution in American society – that's not coming from the right wing. That's for darn sure. All right, Tom, thank you so much for doing this. Before we go, also, you've got the coolest ebook names and website names that you keep, you keep getting all these websites. Before we go, give it to my audience. Where can they find you? Where can they find some of your ebooks? Give it all to them. Well, two things. I'll say tomspodcast.com is where you should go. That's where you'll find the more than 1,500 episodes of The Tom Woods Show. So tomspodcast.com. And then my most recent and probably one of the best eBooks I put out, it costs nothing, get it for free, aocisrong.com. It's about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's views and it just goes through and dismantles them. So anybody who's, you know, for example, everybody's talking about climate change these days uh, because of our Swedish friend. And if you're overwhelmed by people saying, you know, the world's going to end because we're not making these decisions, there's a great chapter in there uh, that deals with that uh, by Patrick Moore, of, formerly of Greenpeace, where he dismantles all that. So AOCiswrong.com is where you should go. Excellent. Tom Woods, thank you so much for being on Death to Tyrants. Thank you, Buck. All right, folks. Now, remember, if you enjoy and appreciate what I'm doing here, you are going to find quite a wonderful home for yourself over in the Tom Woods Show Elite, where you belong. You belong in the Tom Woods Show Elite. There are so many bonuses and goodies and giveaways for you at this point. It's almost ridiculous. So check that out over at supportinglisteners.com. Remember, that's my website. It's not like there are 28 podcasts that use that thing. I bought supportinglisteners.com because nobody owned it yet. How about that? You know, old Woods here, he's the captain of the domain names, supportinglisteners.com. It would warm my heart, and I guarantee you're going to get something nice out of it. Really nice bonuses for you. Membership in the Tom Woods Show Elite, which is a, a great, great, fantastic discussion group. You're going to feel like it's your home away from home. It's your home filled with normal people as opposed to whatever town you live in. So uh, enjoy that. Supportinglisteners.com is where to go. I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of the Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.